Let's bow our heads and begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we again pray your guidance and blessing upon us tonight as we read and study in the prophecies of Hosea. This is a difficult book for us to grasp, but we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds to understand that we might see our own sinfulness, our need to repent and look to you for mercy, and that also that we would see your great love and mercy in dealing with us as your people. We pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. We also pray tonight for Richard, who's in the ER, that you would be with him and bless the work of the doctors and medical staff, and we pray that it be your will, you grant him uh, strength and recovery. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, this might be a first to have uh, someone join us from the emergency room of the hospital, but uh, that's great. I'm glad I'm glad you're with us tonight, and uh, we, we pray that you know soon you'll feel better and be able to return home. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put the uh, text up there. Whoops, wrong one. <clears throat> uh, last time we went through Hosea 3 and 4, and I just kind of wanted to remind you of the beginning of chapter 4 because this so much summarizes what is wrong uh, in Israel. And when we talk about Israel, at this point we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel because at the time of Solomon, uh, the north, the northern tribes left the south over uh, Solomon's son Rehoboam. His threats to raise their taxes or their, you know, their tax burden on them, and so the northern tribes left and appointed Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, as their ruler, and the south remained with Rehoboam, and so the tribe of Judah in Simeon was somewhat absorbed in Judah, but uh, Benjamin also pretty much stayed with uh, the southern kingdom. The northern tribes uh, were a part of Israel. And one of, the, one of the first things that you read about in the Bible that Jeroboam did is he, he was afraid that the people of Israel, the northern tribes, would continue going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of the Lord, and that when they did so, that, you know, they would finally decide, well, let's just rejoin the southern kingdom, and they would, you know, take the kingdom away from him, uh, possibly even take his life. And so in order to prevent that, he set up golden calves for the people to worship and to offer sacrifices, and pretty much uh, kept, you know, he did everything in his power to keep uh, the people in the north from traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the temple of the Lord uh, as they were commanded. And so right from the very start, uh, Jeroboam turned uh, the people away from the worship of the Lord, and the kingdom just went on downhill from there. And there were prophets who kept calling them back to uh, worship the true God uh, and there were a few high points, but for the most part, it was general decline. And at the time when Hosea wrote, 
was actually a very prosperous time under the second Jeroboam. Uh, the kingdom was doing well, much like in our own country. You know, it's a, even though there's troubles, it's a prosperous time. But like our country, you know, the people of Israel were not being faithful to the Lord. They had turned aside into all sorts of idolatry and pagan practices and counted it all as, you know, all as, as you know, kind of equal. It didn't really matter whether you worship, you know, Jehovah God or, you know, Baal, they kind of viewed it all as the same. And uh, so in Hosea chapter four, uh, these words really just summarize so much the problem in Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy. Uh, literally, this word controversy uh, indicates like a charge that you would make in court, uh, an accusation uh, with the inhabitants of the land. And so what is this charge of which they are guilty? It is because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. And so they had turned aside from the truth, which is revealed in the Bible. Uh, they no longer showed mercy, or the, the Hebrew word keseth, or hesed can mean faithfulness. They were no longer faithful to the Lord, no longer loved the Lord, no longer showed mercy and kindness and the love of God and their dealings with other people. And uh, the biggest issue, which is behind the others, is they really had any no knowledge of God in the land. Uh, now, that doesn't mean they might not have known about God, or known even some of the teachings of God's word, but they really did not know God. Uh, they did not, lo did not know his justice or his love and his mercy uh, for the sake of the promised Messiah and Savior. And so again, much like today, you know, people today, uh, they, don't, they don't know the truth. Uh, they don't believe the truth that, you know, God created all things and that uh, we're his people and that we're responsible to him and that God's ways are good and right. Uh, they don't know and believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son and that through faith in him there's forgiveness in life. Uh, no mercy, uh, no faithfulness toward God, no kindness and love toward God or fellow human beings. And, of course, they don't know God. Uh, they don't have any relationship with God. They don't know him as their God. Even though they may have heard things about God, they don't know him as God. And of course, the result follows by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. They break out and blood toucheth blood. In other words, you know, murder and other uh, evils continue to get worse and worse. And for that reason, the land's going to mourn, and everyone that dwells therein shall languish, along with the beasts of the field, the fowls of heaven, the fish of the sea. Uh, because we often don't think about, you know, our sins and how they affect everything and everyone, uh, but they do. Uh, we often think, well, if, you know, I can sin, if it's if it doesn't hurt anybody else, then, 
you know, it, it's fine. But when people sin, it brings God's judgment not only on them, but it brings God's judgment on the land, upon the animals, uh, upon even the fish in the sea suffer because of our sinfulness. And, you know, one example of, of sin and how it can affect everything is when we think of families that are, you know, broken up by divorce and how it affects not just the couple that divorce, but it affects the children, it can affect grandchildren, uh, it it devastates much more than just one person or, you know, a person commits a crime and you think, well, maybe I just hurt one person, but it's not just one person. It affects others uh, as well. And when God's judgment comes, it even affects the rest of creation. And uh, he speaks here in chapter four of, you know, how their hearts are set on iniquity and how God is warning them and warning them, but they don't listen. And uh, I'm going to jump up here then to chapter 5, where uh, this warning goes on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read tonight. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a very good Hebrew student, but uh, I'm going to read tonight. I'm using a interlinear... Uh, Hebrew, English, and uh, so it's got the English words underneath, but I can compare the Hebrew as we go. I'm going to read because here from here because I think it will be helpful uh, if we compare uh, the translation with actually, you know, the, the Hebrew words and what the Hebrew words are saying. So in in chapter 5, uh, it says, Hear this, O priest, and listen, house of Israel, and give ear, house of the king, for judgment is toward you. Literally, it's the judgment toward you, uh, indicating that uh, God here is now addressing, and he uses three different words, uh, you know, hear, O priest, listen, O house of Israel, and then the third one, give ear. It's like, you know, turning your ear to hear something. Uh, house of the king. And so he's addressing not just the people, but especially the rulers of God's people, the priest and the king. And he's saying the judgment is toward you. In other words, they are going to be judged for what's going on in Israel. And he says... Because, so the reason why they're going to be judged, you have been a snare, which is a trap, to Mizpah. Uh, Mizpah, you may remember uh, from the book of Genesis, uh, there was, <clears throat> when uh, Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, caught up to him, uh, when he Jacob fled with his wives and children and Laban catches up to him. Uh, Laban says, you know, the Lord judge between you and me. And they, you know, they put up a pile of rocks. You know, this is going to be a witness between you and me. If you harm any of my children, uh, the Lord judge you is basically what it was. Uh, we see, you know, necklaces and other jewelry today with the word Mizpah divided up, you know, it's broken up and it's 
used as kind of a symbol of love, you know, two parts of the same thing. But really, uh, what this Mizpah was, uh, was a, it was kind of a, kind of a threat, you know, Laban is saying, you know, I can't watch over you because I'm going back to Haran, but the Lord watch over you. And if you hurt my daughters or my grandchildren, God judge you. So it was kind of a, a threat and a warning. And, you know, they established that agreement or covenant there at Mizpah. But there are also numerous other towns and villages which took the name Mizpah as a part of it. So I don't know if we're exactly sure uh, where this Mizpah is, but if it's the Mizpah that uh, Jacob and Laban, where they had this agreement or covenant, it would be on the east side of the Jordan River as you are coming back uh, to the land of Israel from uh, up by the Euphrates or up by Haran. Uh, but we remember that part of Israel, uh, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, if I remember right, uh, they received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River in this area of Gilead, which was a good place for raising flocks and herds of sheep and goats and probably cattle. And so it very well may be referring to that Mizpah to the people of Israel, because this would be part of the northern kingdom, uh, the people at Mizpah being a major, the major city or area there, and then upon Tabor. Tabor is a kind of a big mound, or I guess a big hill, or you might call it. They call it Mount Tabor, uh, but it's uh, more of a great big hill uh, at Jezreel. Uh, which would be in the area of Galilee in, in the north. So again, uh, this would be on the west side of the Jordan River, so in Israel. So they, he's saying that, you know, the leaders have spread, have been a snare or, or a trap on Mizpah, and they spread a net upon Tabor. In other words, they're, they're trapping, using the illustration of trapping here, in this case, people. And it says, and the revolters are profound to make slaughter. Or reading in here, uh, it says the revolters have gone deep in slaughtering. The, the Hebrew thought is to, to go deep in slaughtering. And then God says, I chasten all of them. In other words, God is chastening his people because they are misleading the people of Israel. Uh, and setting up, you know, a trap to destroy them, really. And the the revolting against God, uh, the rebellion against God, has gone deep uh, in, in slaughtering and bringing about death, spiritual death especially, uh, to God's people, even though God is chastening them and warning them and trying to bring them back to repentance. He says, I know Ephraim, and Israel has not hidden from me. Now Ephraim, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are the two sons of Joseph. And when Jacob blessed his sons, he adopted Joseph's two sons as his own sons. And so instead of, although sometimes it speaks of Joseph, 
in reference to the northern kingdom. But Ephraim and Manasseh, especially Ephraim, was the biggest uh, population-wise of the tribes of Israel. And Ephraim is often used as a reference to the whole northern kingdom because Ephraim was uh, the biggest tribe and Ephraim was one of the sons of Joseph. So he's saying, I know Ephraim and Israel has not hidden from me. And so Israel is not, you know, what, what Israel is doing is not hidden from the Lord God. Uh, we remember that nothing that we do can be hidden from the Lord God. You know, I think of uh, Psalm 139 is, is such a, a beautiful psalm, but it reminds us of some truths that, you know, if we are living in sin and disobedience can be uh, a little bit frightening. Uh, in Psalm 139, it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on, a word on my tongue but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And so there is no hiding from the Lord God. Uh, Psalm 109, or Psalm 90, rather, which is a Psalm of Moses, uh, where it speaks of God's judgment upon uh, our sinfulness. Here it says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. In other words, in the light of your face. And so our secret sins are not hidden from God. They are, you know, done right in front of his face. And it's probably not something we always think about because sometimes we think that, you know, nobody will see, nobody will know, but everything we do is open before the Lord and he sees all. And so there's nothing hidden from his sight, no sin hidden from him. And so, you know, the point here uh, that it's making is God knows what Ephraim is doing. He knows what Ephraim's heart is or Israel's heart. And then he says it, Oh, Ephraim, you have fornicated or committed whoredom. Uh, Israel is defiled. In other words, it's talking here about spiritual fornication, though in some cases that also involved actual physical fornication because uh, many of the pagan practices included uh, temple prostitution and sex, sex orgies in the worship of these idols, especially of Baal and Asherah. And it says, Israel is defiled. And so in the same way as a, a woman would be considered defiled uh, if she uh, commits adultery or fornication, so all of Israel is defiled. And it says their doings will not allow them to turn to their God, for the spirit of fornication is in their midst, and they do not know Jehovah. Uh, and so their sins what they're doing don't even allow them to turn to God because they're so focused on, you know, their unfaithfulness to God, the things that they're doing, uh, their pagan worship, that they don't even know Jehovah. 
And so their their sins have really blinded them to who God is and his love and his mercy. And so they don't even know God. They don't even know Jehovah. It says the pride of Israel answers to his face. Uh, and so, you know, Israel's pride answers uh, right to his face. And then, of course, the judgment. So Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in their iniquity. Judah also, or Judah shall also stumble with them. In other words, so Israel and Ephraim are going to fall, and later uh, Judah would also fall. And of course, we see that in, you know, the end of the northern kingdom when they're carried away in exile by the Assyrians, uh, never really to return to their land. And of course, Judah, uh, a couple hundred years later, Judah also falls because of their idolatry and wickedness. It says, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Jehovah or seek the Lord, but they shall not find. They won't find Jehovah. He has withdrawn himself from them. Uh, and so they're going to go, you know, to, to worship God, but they're not going to find the Lord because he's, he's withdrawn. He has uh, turned them over to their sinful ways because they refuse to repent and they refuse to look to him. Uh, and so even though Jehovah is gone, they're continuing some of the outward worship practices, the traditions, but they're not really worshiping Jehovah God or the true God anymore because he's withdrawn. They won't even find him. Uh, it explains a little bit further. They have acted treacherously against Jehovah, for they have brought forth strange sons, uh, strange really indicates that these are uh, foreigners or pagan sons. In other words, by their living together with and intermarrying with uh, the other nations that practiced idolatry, uh, their children were brought up not knowing the Lord, uh, strange sons or pagan sons, and you know, the people as a whole had turned or were turning away from the Lord. Again, it's much like what's going on in our own country today where, you know, after after World War II and, you know, up, up until now, more and more parents failed to, to teach their children the truth. And, you know, now we're at a time when, you know, it seems like so many, so many young people don't know anything about who God is or what he's done for them. Uh, certainly do not know the Lord. And, of course, the marriage and intermarriage between Christian and non-Christian goes on, and more and more people turn aside from worshiping and serving the Lord. And it says, Now a new moon shall devour them with their portions. And I believe, uh, let me change the page here, says now in the King James says now shall a month devour them with their portions literally in the Hebrew it is a a new moon but uh, we need to remember that the the children of Israel counted their months on a lunar calendar and so it speaks about 
you know, the monthly observances, there were special sacrifices offered uh, each month. And so a new moon shall devour them with their portions. In other words, they're, they're offering all these sacrifices, but it's really not doing any good. It says, blow a horn in Gibeah, a trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud, Beth-Avon, after you, O Benjamin. And so uh, blowing a horn was, you know, sounding the ram's horn was a call of the people together, often a call of the people to come together for battle. And if we remember, uh, if I remember right, uh, Paul, Saul, not the Apostle Paul, but Saul, the, the Old Testament king, uh, was in Gibeah. If I remember right, Gibeah is in uh, Galilee, south of the Sea of Galilee, and Ramah is another city there in, in uh, what was then the kingdom of Israel. Beth-Avon is really Beth-El, but it's called Beth-Avon because instead of being the house of God, it is now called Beth-Avon uh, uh, in these prophecies because it's a house of Baal, house of idol worship. And when it says, after you, O Benjamin, uh, here Benjamin is pictured as the tribe, you know, leading them uh, into battle as it often did under King Saul, uh, or in this case, it could be, you know, leading them into uh, idolatry. Uh, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of correction. In other words, God is going to chasten and correct his people. And as a result, Ephraim, uh, the land of Israel, is going to be desolate. The people are going to be carried away. Among the tribes of Israel, I have made known that which is confirmed. Uh, and so God is, through the prophets, made known what's going to happen. It says the rulers of Judah were as removers of a border, uh, or you, you probably could speak of this as a, if I can find the passage here, remove the bound. Uh, I think the New King James, it's, it's talking about the, the land boundaries or the, the allotments to the children of Israel. And what happened when, when Israel was attacked, I'm trying to remember exactly how this took place, but I, I believe it was Israel and Syria attacked Judah. There was a battle between the north and the south, and Israel uh, sought help from Syria in this, and Judah sought help from Assyria, uh, two different nations. And as a result, some Judah captured some cities uh, from the, the tribes of Israel, and they moved, they moved their boundaries. You know, they tried to take in, in their greed, they tried to take in land which belonged to uh, their brethren. Uh, to try to take land which had been allotted to them under Moses and Joshua. Uh, and so it points out 
that God's going to pour out his wrath upon them, you know, as one pours out water. Uh, and so God tells that his wrath is going to be poured out against Judah as well because of this. Then it says, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. Because he was pleased, he walked after the command. And it's, it's not really talking about the command of God here, but possibly the command of Jeroboam not to worship at Jerusalem, uh, to turn aside and worship idols. Uh, it certainly seems to be talking about uh, walking after the commandments of men. Uh, because instead of walking after the Lord God, they followed the commands of their rulers. And it says, God, God here says, Therefore I am as a moth to Ephraim and to the house of Judah as rottenness. Uh, maybe dry rot might be a, a good picture here. In other words, they're going to be eaten away and decay because they have turned aside from serving the true God uh, to simply following the commandments of men or just the outward command. And it says, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. In other words, when Ephraim or the tribes of Israel saw uh, their wound that God was afflicting them, instead of turning to God, uh, they turned to the, the country of Assyria, uh, to King Jerob, which may refer to, uh, I can never remember all the, the kings, Teglath Pileser, uh, for, for help. But it's kind of ironic. You know, it says, yet he could not heal you nor cure you of your wound. And it explains why here in just a minute. But kind of ironic that, Israel turns to Assyria for help, and it ends up being Assyria that comes and conquers them and carries them away into exile and, and destroys, destroys the north, puts an end to the northern kingdom. Uh, and so instead of turning to the Lord God, they turn to, turn to man and to other nations and kingdoms for help. And so God says, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, as a young lion, to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him, uh, as it says there. Uh, in looking here back at the Hebrew interlinear, it says, For I am to Ephraim as the lion, as the young lion, to the house of Judah. Uh, I even I tear and go, I take away, and no one rescues. In other words, they can turn to these other nations for help uh, in their problems, but since it is God who is afflicting them and chastising them for their sin, for their turning aside, uh, it's not going to do any good. No one's going to rescue them from God because he's like a young lion or a lion who goes and, and takes them away. Uh, God says, I will go, I will return to my place until they confess their guilt and seek my face. And then in their affliction, they will seek me diligently. Uh, and so God says, you know, I'm going to go and return to my place. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, God's judging them. Uh, but he's not going to 
turn and help them until they acknowledge their sins and seek God's face. Uh, I always think of the passage in 1 John that I read so often. It's such a beautiful passage, uh, which reminds us that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we're unwilling to acknowledge our own sinfulness, uh, we're, we're fooling ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we acknowledge our sins to the Lord, uh, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And of course, the reason why is given in the next chapter that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so God here says, I'm going to withdraw from, from them. I, I've judged them. I'm chastising them, and I'm, I'm going to pull away and go back and and wait for them to acknowledge their sins. And it says, you know, that they will, in their affliction, they will seek me earlier, seek me diligently. Uh, it often happens, you know, when everything is going well, uh, we don't see any need to repent and look to the Lord God. We're, we just take everything for granted and go on our way. But when God's judgments, his chastisement comes upon us and, you know, all these things are happening to us, we're afflicted, then we wake up and say, oh, you know, this, I've turned away from God. And we, we seek after the Lord God and we acknowledge our sins. And so, one of the reasons, and I think this brings out the reason that God was dealing with the northern kingdom like this was the ultimate goal was to bring them to see their sin, to bring them to repentance that they might return unto the Lord. And, you know, this meant uh, them being carried away into captivity. Uh, this meant being away until they finally wake up and seek the Lord. And, you know, this can happen to us too, that if we do not recognize the chastisement of the Lord and we continue on in our evil ways, finally God will step back and say, you know, I'll return to my place until they acknowledge their sins and seek my face. And uh, he'll let trouble come until we wake up and look to him for mercy and forgiveness. Uh, God's goal is that we repent. Uh, ultimately, if we don't repent, we're headed for eternal judgment. And this brings us to chapter 6. Uh, and chapter 6 begins with, uh, I, su I suppose it could be taken as a a prayer of Hosea, kind of an interlude prayer or a call uh, to the people from the Lord to return. Uh, and so it's a really a, a beautiful beginning of this chapter. 
Come and let us return to the Lord or to Jehovah, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has stricken and he will bind us, talking about binding up wounds, bandaging up wounds that they heal. After two days, he will bring us to life. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live before him. Uh, and I don't know for sure why the reference here is to being revived after two days and in the third day being raised up and we shall, shall live in his sight. Uh, sometimes it's connected to, uh, people like to connect it to the fact that Jesus was in the tomb and after two days were up on the third day, he was raised up to life and uh, now lives forever uh, with, with the Lord. He's been raised up and ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Uh, but it's probably since Christ had not yet come, uh, it's probably referring simply to, you know, how quickly God will give us life again if we turn back to him and uh, raise us up from spiritual death and darkness and that we will live in his sight. And it says, then we shall, then we shall know we who follow on to know Jehovah. In other words, if we, if we follow on to know the Lord, uh, then we'll know him. And it says that his going forth is established as the dawn, and he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. And so it, it describes the coming of Jehovah uh, as the dawn, as the sun rising, and, and coming to us like the rain, the, the, the early and the later rains on the earth, that uh, when we repent and turn to the Lord, if we follow on to the Lord and know the Lord, uh, he will come to us uh, as the morning and like the rain, the former and the latter rains upon the earth. However, as we go on, we see the, the sin of Ephraim and Judah uh, still kept them from returning to the Lord. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your goodness is like a morning cloud, and it goes away like the early dew. So I have hewn them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments have been as light that goes forth. And so God questions, you know, well, what should he do to Israel or what should he do to Judah that he hasn't already done? Because their goodness, their repentance, their return to the Lord is kind of like a morning cloud. And Janet might understand this better than uh, the rest of us. But, you know, along the, along the seacoast in California, uh, in the morning you had clouds, but by 10 or 11 o'clock, uh, they often had burned away and you had bright sunshine. And the comparison here is, you know, that their righteousness, their goodness, their repentance is like a morning cloud that is there for a little bit, but then it, you know, burns away and it's gone. Or it's like the early dew that, you know, everything is wet, but then it's, it's gone. It, it evaporates away. 
And what God here is saying that the repentance of Ephraim and Judah is like that, that it's 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 there, but it's shallow, and it's only temporary. It's not true, sincere repentance and faith, but it's, you know, we're having all this trouble, God. You know, you've afflicted us, and we're suffering from our enemies, and, you know, God, we're sorry. We'll turn back to you. We'll do all this, but then as soon as God comes and blesses them, they're right back into their sinful ways and have forgotten the Lord. And it speaks here of, you know, God has hewn them by the prophets. You know, the Bible says that the word of God in, in Hebrews 4 is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it, you know, cuts uh, all the way down to the joints and marrow, you know, divides the, the thoughts, all the way down to the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the the, the word of God reveals our inmost thoughts and desires and cuts away all the facade, all the hypocrisy and reveals our utter sinfulness that we might turn to the Lord and receive his mercy. And so with the prophets, you know, it's like God has chopped, chopped on them with an ax, you know, trying to bring them to repent by cutting away, you know, their sins and uh, threatening to cut them down if they do not repent. And he's slain them by the words of his mouth. Uh, in other words, God, with with his word, uh, has pointed out their, their death. Uh, and he's been as light that goes forth. So he, he shined the light on them uh, in order, again, to bring them to repentance. I think of the passage in Isaiah 55 where it talks about you know, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and water the earth and return not thither, you know, until they water the earth and uh, cause it to produce uh, bread for the eater and bread for the eater and seed to the sower. He says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. And so, can you still hear me? Okay. Um, I finally found a word to mute that for just a little bit so we can go on here. God says, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice. And again, the word for mercy here is hesed in, in the Hebrew, which can mean faithfulness. But this is quoted in the New Testament, and Jesus himself used it. Uh, there, the, the Greek uh, helios is uh, the word for mercy. So I've desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And so Jesus uh, quotes this passage in, in the New Testament to the scribes and the Pharisees, I believe it was, but let me see for sure. It would be in Matthew chapter 9. I remember right. Uh, maybe not. Yeah, Matthew chapter 9, uh, beginning at verse 9, Jesus passes on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the, at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. 
So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so it was, it was the, the Pharisees that he addressed. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what Jesus here is explaining is that he desired, I think probably the easiest way to define this, he, he desired true religion or true faith. Uh, those who trust in the Lord God and as a, a fruit of their faith, they live for the Lord God. They show mercy to others, uh, not just sacrifice, not just the outward appearance of righteousness. And of course, the Pharisees were known for their efforts to keep every last letter of the law perfectly and to do everything just right. Uh, when they came from the marketplace, they had to uh, wash their hands before they would eat, lest they be defiled, because they might have touched something unclean. And if they eat something and touch it with their hands, which are unclean, then, you know, they are defiled. And so they'd wash their hands uh, so that they would be clean before they ate. They weren't concerned about... Uh, hygiene as we think of washing your hands before you eat, but, you know, they didn't want to be unclean before God. And they practiced all these things and had the tradition of the elders, which was an interpretation of how to keep all these commands of God. But their hearts were far from the Lord. They didn't trust in the Lord God and look to him for mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. They depended on their own works. Uh, if we're going to compare this to today, it would be those who think that by simply going through the outward motions of uh, being a Christian, going to church, uh, maybe going to Sunday school or Bible class, uh, you know, participating in the church service, singing the hymns, singing the liturgy, by doing this, that they were pleasing God, but their hearts uh, were still far from the Lord Jesus. In fact, Jesus. Uh, in chapter 15, addressed uh, that issue as well. In uh, chapter 15, uh, Jesus here is uh, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees who are accusing his disciples of uh, transgressing the traditions of the elders because they do not wash their hands when they eat bread, which is what I was talking about. And uh, Jesus said, Verse, at verse 7 and following, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, and this is from Isaiah 29, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, uh, or in you know their emptiness they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so Jesus pointed out that uh, their outward worship uh, was was worthless because their hearts were far from the Lord. Now, this is echoed in 
many places in the Bible. I think of David when David sinned with Bathsheba and then killed Uriah, and then he uh, is confronted by Nathan the prophet. And Psalm 51 uh, is a psalm where he uh, confesses his sin then to the Lord and, and seeks God's mercy and forgiveness. And in Psalm 51, uh, find the right verse here. He says at verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. And then a little bit later, uh, he says, I can find it, verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, or these, O God, you will not despise. And so the point that is being made here is that God desires true religion, faith in Christ, uh, and the fruits of that faith, that we love the Lord God, love our neighbor. Uh, he doesn't just desire the outward sacrifice. Uh, or in other words, you know, when you sin, you don't say, okay, well, I sin. Now I need to uh, offer a lamb, and then it's all taken care of. And, you know, if I got plenty of lambs, I guess I can go out and sin again. Uh, no genuine repentance. God desires true repentance and true faith in his mercy and with that comes a desire to live for the Lord. As I've pointed out many times, you know, that question in the 1943 catechism about in preparation for the Lord's Supper is that we should examine ourselves to see whether we truly repent or we're truly sorry for our sins, whether we trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And then thirdly, kind of as a check question, do we desire, with the help and aid of God the Holy Spirit, to henceforth amend our sinful lives and live for him? In other words, if we are truly penitent, we're truly sorry for our sins uh, and looking to Christ for mercy and forgiveness, we are also then going to have the desire, which is from God, it's God working in us, to not go on in the same sins, but to repent and to seek to live for the Lord God. And so God desired mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. Uh, you know, there they have dealt treacherously against me. And so it compares uh, the children of Israel to uh, like men, uh, literally in the Hebrew, here at, at verse 7, if I can find the right place here. It's a little, little hard for me to get used to reading from right to left and uh, going in that direction instead of the other way. Uh, perhaps I'm helped if I'm in the right chapter. Uh, so it says that, but they like, where it says like men, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, which is the name Adam. 
And so some translate this, they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Uh, and so it's a comparison as Adam's sin in the garden, so they are sinning against God's covenant. And so either it's referring to sinning as the rest of the men in the world sin, or it's comparing it to uh, Adam's sin. And it says that they've acted like traitors against me there. It says, Gilead is a city of those who work iniquity, slippery with blood marks. Uh, Gilead is the area to the east of the Jordan uh, where, you know, they're working iniquity and it's, you know, full of blood. And it speaks of the priests here, and as troops of robbers wait for a man, the company of priests murdering the way to Shechem. Uh, Shechem is, if I remember right, where they went from for their religious services, and it speaks here of the priests uh, even killing people uh, in the way to Shechem. Some have talked about, you know, a couple of different rival places of worship, and uh, they might be killing people for not going to their place of worship. But it says that they murder in the way to Shechem, for they have done wickedness. And so even the priests are are murdering. Uh, certainly they are murdering spiritually and maybe even physically. Again, it says, I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. The fornication of Ephraim is there. Israel is defiled. And so again, uh, like an unfaithful woman, uh, Ephraim, Israel are unclean. Uh, they have committed adultery against the Lord because they were the Lord's bride and they have turned aside into worshiping pagan idols uh, of one kind or another. And then also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed to you when I return the captivity of my people. And so upon Judah also, God's judgment is going to come. And uh, so Judah is not going to escape. They escape for a, a little longer, uh, but God's judgment is going to come upon Judah as well. And in my studying for tonight, I heard kind of an interesting question uh, because a lot of tonight talked about, you know, Ephraim and Israel, and in many cases were going through the outward motions of religion and worshiping uh, the Lord God, but inside they were corrupt. You know, it's like, well, they went to church, but, you know, on the way they, the priests were committing murder uh, or, you know, they went to church, but they're doing all these other evil things. They not only do they go to church, but they also participate in idolatry. They welcome uh, all kinds of other gods and ideas into their their service or we might think of it today all the ways in which you know we are guilty of idolatry whenever we let any person or anything become uh, the focus of our attention uh, and we're trusting in that or loving god that or serving that more than we're serving god it's a a form of idolatry so it might be you know, it might be our jobs, it might be our house, it might be our family, it might be something uh, or some hobby or something we want to do becomes so important to us, 
it's more important than God, and we place our trust in that rather than God. And so all of us are are guilty, and yet so often we go through the outward forms of worship. Well, the, the question that this pastor asked is, thinking about your church, and you know, if you think about the passages where, you know, you know, they're they're you're worshiping God with your mouth and with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. Uh, you're following the commandments, the traditions of men, rather than the things of God. If you think about that, how much uh, his his question was: If the Holy Spirit left your church, what would change? And that's kind of something to think about. If you know, suddenly at you know, at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church at Rogers, the Holy Spirit quit working, was not doing anything. Uh, would anything change, or would we continue to meet every Sunday and uh, go through the motions of, you know, s- singing the liturgy and singing the hymns and doing the service? Would people even notice if the Holy Spirit had left? You know, somebody who observed what we're doing might not even be able to see the difference. Well, I think the point of that question, and it's a good question to think about, uh, the point of that question is, if the Holy Spirit is leading and present and teaching us from the Word, it should change everything. If our religion is just going through the outward motions, following the traditions and, you know, doing things the way our forefathers have done for hundreds of years, but our heart is not in it. You know, we might not even notice if the Holy Spirit is not there. But if the Holy Spirit, if, if, if we are worshiping in spirit and truth, as Jesus said, you know, when the woman at the well asked him, you know, said, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews say we should worship at Jerusalem. Uh, you know, where is the right place to worship? And Jesus said, you know, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will not worship at this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, or at Jerusalem, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And so true worship is a worship from the heart. And it's from the heart that trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and life. True worship flows from the heart that relies on Jesus and his death on the cross for forgiveness and for everlasting life. And the only way that our worship is acceptable to God is when we trust in Christ. And all the other stuff that we put into worship that we think, you know, somehow makes it better really doesn't make it better at all. Uh, Because, you know, all the robes and the liturgical forms and all those things, while they may be good and beneficial in teaching, uh, they don't make our worship acceptable to God. The only way God accepts us is when we repent of our sins and look in faith to Jesus Christ. And that's what God is calling his people of Israel to do. Uh, Repent of your sins and look to me, know me. Uh, They had no knowledge of God, and God wants us to know him. Of course, the way we get to know him is by reading and studying his word. And of course, where is, where do we see God? Uh, Jesus is God, the son in human flesh. He has 
revealed God to us. So if we know Jesus, we know God. Well, the way to know Jesus is through the scriptures which testify of him. And so, so important for us to continue in the scriptures, to learn of our Lord Jesus, uh, to know God, to know his justice, his wrath, but also to know his love and his mercy, that God is reaching out to us even when he sends trouble, even when there's affliction. God is reaching out to us to call us to repent and look to him for mercy and help and strength instead of looking to the world, instead of looking everywhere else. You know, the children of Israel, when the troubles start to come, instead of turning to God, they turn to other kings and other nations for help. It's like us when troubles come, you know, we we try to find help from, you know, the government or from uh, other organizations or from other means, you know, the ways of the world instead of turning to the Lord God in prayer and seeking help from him. And so there's so much to learn in these passages and uh, so much for each and every one of us to consider and to repent of our own idolatry and sin and look to the Lord for mercy and pray that he not only forgive us, but then also lead us and guide us in his word and grant that we really know him as a true God and trust in him. And, you know, not just know him by knowing facts about him, but know him by knowing him as our God and Savior and trusting in him. You know, the Hebrew understanding of to know is like a husband knowing his wife. It, it was, you know, when Adam knew his wife, uh, it was through intimate sexual intercourse. And to know God, we're not talking about sexual intercourse, but to know God is to know him intimately. Uh, to know, you know, his great love and mercy f toward us in Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what Hosea is calling us to do, to repent of any idolatry in our life, any sin in our life, and look to the Lord God for mercy, and then know him and follow him and walk with him uh, throughout our life. I'll stop talking, and anybody have questions or comments? I'd like to do chapter 7, but I think we'll save it for next time because that's uh, it continues the same the same thought, you know, talking about when, it, when God would have healed Israel, uh, then uh, their iniquity was discovered and uh, their, their shallowness, the falsehood. So we'll save that and talk about that next time. But this is a, it's a difficult, difficult book, but it really addresses... It really addresses things in the world today, in our own nation, in our own church, and even in our own lives. And so it's certainly a book that God has given us so that we consider and study and learn and uh, turn to him for mercy. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we know that we too are guilty of idolatry. We may not have made images of wood and stone, but so often we serve other things instead of you. We love other things instead of and more than you. Uh, we devote ourselves to other things or other people rather than following after you. Uh, 
We pray that you would lead us to repent of our sins and receive your grace and mercy and forgiveness. We ask that we not only turn to you when you afflict us, when you chastise us, but to turn to you continually each and every day and receive your grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. Again, we pray for Richard that you would be with him. And uh, again, if it be your will, grant him health and healing and answers to whatever the medical problem is. Uh, we pray your blessing upon our church that all of us would really practice true faith, true religion, and not just go through the motions, but truly love you and, and serve you because of your great love and mercy to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to watch over us and keep us and to lead us in the way everlasting, even if that is to lead us through sorrow and chastisement, because we know that you're always working for our good, that we might trust in our Lord Jesus Christ and continue in that faith until we're with you forever in heaven. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You're very welcome. You all have a good night. Bye.